welcome everyone to our weekly spaces with the Money and Chain community. This is a talks with Sato. And we have a very interesting topic today that is, is very important in the world of Bitcoin, blockchain, and the decentralized future that we are building, which is tokenomics, the token economy. And this is something that can, if done right, it can, it can really strengthen a project, but if done incorrectly, it can, it can, I don't know if destroy it, but it will definitely make it harder for a project to, to grow and develop. So Mati, you just wrote a book on the subject. Uh, I just want you to start by giving us a little bit of introduction about you. I know that you are anonymous or there's aspects of your life that you don't want to share. So of course, just give us whatever you can on your career so far and how you got into the topics of tokenomics and to write this book and to devote yourself full-time to the Bitcoin space. Yeah, I appreciate that. And thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm pseudonymous, but I, I, I put details out there about my background where I think if someone really tried to track me down, it'd be relatively easy, but it's always, it's one thing to have your name and face just like right out there default, I think in this space. So Anyway, I'm happy to get into my background. So to keep it brief, started my career in the traditional finance world, like many people in crypto. I worked for Ray Dalio's hedge fund, Bridgewater Associates. Many people know Ray Dalio is the author of the book, The Principles. So worked there in an algorithmic trading capacity, left finance to move into the tech world, worked for a number of machine learning focused startups, actually started a, a machine learning focused web two startup, raised VC money, did all, did that journey. So I have some founding experience in the web two world, at least. In parallel to that, while that was happening, I had been investing in Bitcoin and Ethereum since 2015 or through the ICO craze and in, in Ethereum's case. So I saw a lot of the madness and the early takes and having that Traditional finance background helped a lot in the ICO craze of 2017 and helping to identify what were probably more, more likely to be scams or just unsustainable models. And so with that kind of data science modeling, Monte Carlo simulation, hands-on coding background, as well as uh, fintech background, I started just on a volunteer basis informally helping projects with things like modeling out their tokenomics, stress testing, right? Uh, parameter optimization, these sorts of things. The Stacks Foundation, Stacks is a top 50 project by market cap, right? A layer two for Bitcoin. They reached out and said, do you want to do this in a more formal capacity? So I joined the Stacks Foundation as a resident focused on tokenomics. So working with the foundation entity, working with teams in their ecosystem on their tokens, working with the foundation itself on this, in some degree on the Stacks tokenomics. So help actually helping working on the consensus mechanism for Stacks itself, which is pretty cool. It's like a billion dollar market cap project. So that was exciting. And then more recently I joined Status. Many people know of Status because it was a big 2017 ICO and Ethereum ecosystem. I didn't, I wasn't around at that time. I joined, started this year, but they have a number of projects that they're working on that are focusing on being the core infrastructure to enable network states. And so a lot of the technology is not necessarily brand new technology, but it's really being built 
with the token as well in order to prioritize censorship resistance, economic security, right? Prioritizing these factors over things like just profit, which other things potentially prioritize. I work on a day-to-day basis and status on these projects on Logo State is the project on various different projects that they're incubating on the token and on the adjacent areas on the economics, the business model, the incentives, the governance, the overlap of all these things with the regulatory side of things. So that's what I do on a daily basis. And I also do some advisory work, some angel investing and some mentoring at a few different Web3 accelerators, typically focusing, helping founders with their token and also things like fundraising and general kind of founder uh, problems. Wow, that, that is a, a very interesting CV, if we can call it that way. The subject of nations, uh, nation states like what Balaji describes. It's, yeah, network states. Yeah, network states, yes, yes. That is, is very interesting to me. And I think maybe at some stage we need, we will perhaps need to do an, a space dedicated to that subject because that is really fascinating. When did you write the book? Yeah, yeah. Th- so... This book, this guide, Tokenomics for Builders, open source, anyone, it's basically a book, but it's not for sale. Anyone can access it. I started working on it probably like a year and a half ago, to be honest. And it was started out because I was actually speaking with teams that had grad. Yeah. Thank you for putting that up there. So that's the pinned tweet, open source, completely free. Anyone can access it. I started working on it because I was speaking to teams that had just graduated from a Web3 accelerator and they all basically had the same questions, right? They all had questions about as simple as what's the standard for vesting or what percent allocation should go to the team to more complex things, right? What's the incentives of the, why should people use the token, right? Like what's the best tokenomics, quote unquote, which doesn't really exist, but we can get into that all these questions. And I started out, I realized that they needed a comprehensive guide and that it would drive me crazy if I was answering these questions for every team individually. And so I could create a guide that everyone could refer to, at least as a basis for understanding. And so started on the guide, it it kept growing, it kept adapting, it kept evolving. And then I published it a couple months ago at this point. So loosely speaking, It's broken down into two parts. Part one is like all the core fundamental terminology, concepts, knowledge, history that everyone should know. And it's it's really written for a builder's point of view, like a founder, but investors and general people just generally interested can also get a lot of value from it. And then part two is more of a step-by-step process to actually go through what I call the tokenomics design canvas and actually end up with a first rough, first draft of your token model. And so it goes through things like incentive mechanisms, identifying those conflicts, doing quantitative modeling of both the supply side and the demand side, and arriving at optimizing your parameters, some even on the legal aspect, although obviously that's a bit changing all the time and I'm not a lawyer, but it tries to get, it tries to at least point people in the right direction when it can't necessarily provide uh, an answer. Yes, I, I really recommend everyone that, that is listening to take a look at the book. I, I haven't read it the whole way through yet, but I, I found it very valuable. And the first section, it, it helps a lot in understanding how to think about the tokenomics and why they are so important for the life of 
the project. Yeah, yeah I, I, I honestly think you did a great, a great job with it. So the first, I can notice, the first question that I, I would like to start with is if you can, like our audience is non-technical mostly. So sure. can we explain the concept of tokenomics for an, an audience that is more like an average user? Yeah, it's a term that is oftentimes misunderstood. I don't think there is a very widely universal accepted one definition, but the way I like to think of it is that tokenomics is essentially all the aspects of a token. Many of them are, most of them are economic or value related, but they can also be non-monetary, non-economic, like governance rules. All these rules that are coded into the token or the way it's used or the way it's emitted that coordinate user behavior. So they coordinate user behavior to basically achieve a specific goal. So let's use a super simple example. It's basically the thing that started it all. It's basically the most simple example you can get, right? Bitcoin rewards miners in each block with a block reward, right? It, it, part of the 21 million Bitcoin that can exist literally unlocks and is given to the miner of a block. And so you're incentivizing users, in this case, miners specifically, to add hash power and secure the network. And so you're aligning all these different entities that don't even know each other, don't need to trust each other, right? Actually have incentives to, if they can, stab each other in the back and steal from each other. But you're, you've created this incentive that actually gets them all to collaborate on securing the network thus benefiting everyone. So it's actually this really beautiful thing. And that what excites me so much about tokenomics is that you, you get these like one plus one equals three type of situations, right? Where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And even when people are acting individually and on their own selfish motivations, the sum of their actions is this collective social good. So that, that's a long-winded answer, but that's how I think about it. Yeah, and no, I think that that is a, a great way for people to start wrapping their minds around it. And not, like you said, I think Bitcoin is, is a very clear example that people can use to know how the system and the incentives are designed and aligned for certain specific actions. Yeah, yeah I think that's it. Um, most important thing for people to keep in, in mind. When you start the book, you outline fundamental concepts that you say every builder should know about tokenomics. Can we go a little bit into that? Sure. Yeah. I think there's a few just going through the chapters, right? There's like why this matters, right? There's what tokenomics is. Those alone are important. I think people oftentimes misunderstand or misinterpret why tokens matter, right? They think it's purely for fundraising or think they think it's purely because if you just launch a token, then people treat it like money. It's, or, or they think if you launch a token, you can get users early, right? Those are true to some extent. You can use a token to incentivize getting users on board, for example, but you, that has to be well-balanced, right? There's plenty of examples of protocols Steam it, right? Step in, even potentially things like Helium, right? Where they emitted tokens to reward some type of user starting to adopt the protocol or use the protocol. But instead of really 
retaining those users. All they did was start paying people to mess around with this thing. And then they either start mercenary farming it because they don't actually care about using the product or they just drop off and they're not retained. And so what you do is you don't really grow your, you don't actually grow your user base. You just pull users forward and make their life cycle short and end up with this pump and dump in action and price, right? This momentum has been killed and you actually stunt the growth of your protocol in the medium to long-term. So tokens when done poorly actually can be very, very deadly to a product, which is one of the things I think people don't really think about. Like a good product can be very much harmed by a bad token. Conversely, a bad product can't necessarily be saved entirely by a good token, right? You need both. You need both a good product and a good token approach. And so a good token, uh, to me, I have this concept in the book of like win-win tokenomics, right? It benefits the holders, it benefits the team, and it also very crucially improves an aspect of the product, right? There's a fundamental reason for the token to exist. Yeah, so I, I think in my opinion, like one of the best reasons or the ultimate use case, the ultimate benefit that tokens enable is new forms of user ownership. So not employee ownership, right? Not shareholder ownership, but user ownership. And I think tokens for the first time make that technologically and economically via feasible to do. So that's some of the core concepts people should know. There's, what is token? I was just thinking through the chapters. There's a great chapter that goes, it's literally called, does every project need a token? And the short answer is no, not every project needs a token. And there's actually a checklist for founders to go through and check off, okay, what are the criteria that maybe suggest that a token is right for my project? And then crucially, people make this mistake all the time. Even if a token is right for your project, it doesn't mean that right now is the best time to launch the token, right? A lot of projects, even when a token makes sense, launch the token too soon, too early. And I'm not talking just about like timing the market, right? Or like launching in a bear versus launching in a bull. I'm talking more about the, the maturity of the product. Because if you launch a token too early, before you're really ready to engage with the community, really ready to retain users, really ready to have users that care about using the product and don't only care about just farming the token, to make a profit, make a quick buck, you're basically just paying people to spam your network and then they're going to leave and then you end up in a bad place. Instead of you build a product that people actually love to use, now you have users and now you start rewarding them for being users and enabling some of these new forms of user ownership that I referred to. So that's one of my favorite chapters and those checklists are super useful. And then there's a whole chapter on just the history of tokenomics. It really goes back all the way to Bitcoin and goes through these last 12 years or so, going through things like stable coins and the launch of Ethereum and the ICO craze in 2017 and synthetic assets and real world assets and things like rebase tokens and protocol owned liquidity, all these core concepts of tokens that we're now familiar with, or most people at least have heard of, but all in one chapter, that's chapter 1.6, a, a, a must know history of tokenomics. So that one in particular took a long time to put together, but I've heard uh, a lot of people have said that's their absolute favorite chapter of the book. Yes. You just mentioned a lot of things that I would like to, to go into. So I, I, I don't think we're going to have enough time to cover everything on one space. 
Yeah, it's a very broad topic, right? So, yeah. It is, but it's also such an important topic. And it's, to me, is so interesting because like you said, this is something new that didn't exist before and that allows for us to build different kinds of systems. So I, I've been taking some notes and I want to start tackling, tackling them one by one. The first one that, that you mentioned, the project Steemit, and I, in the book, you go more in depth on why it didn't work. I actually, I was a Steemit user in the early days. So I've experienced everything that you described in the book. And I think it's a very good example of when tokenomics don't work, they can literally break down an entire protocol. So maybe we, if you want to go a little bit into that to show, yeah, like what happens when you have a bad tokenomics. And in the book, you also uh, mentioned the Axie Infinity game. So maybe we can use those two as examples. Yeah, they're great examples. I, I actually think that whether you're a founder, a builder, investor, just generally interested in the concept, I think there's an argument to say that we can actually learn more from the projects that have failed than we can from the successes, right? I like to study, if you do nothing else, I think looking at stable coins, especially the ones that have failed and looking at project, big projects that have failed are the two best things you can do for a return on your time trying to learn about these concepts. And Steemit in particular is a great case study, a great example, very simple, but very potent to understand about the dangers of misaligned incentives. And I'm surprised when I speak to founders, even some founders working on new Web3 socials that haven't heard of Steemit or don't understand Steemit's history. And that's those who don't understand history are doomed to repeat it. So in Steemit's case, for those who don't remember, it's ba it was basically trying to be a Web3 social media platform. It started with, it had, it had a goal of, of becoming like a fully fledged social media, but it started with basically as essentially like a, a Tumblr or like a blog service, right? So people write blog posts. There was also videos, right? So in a YouTube kind of sense, but you write a blog post. And the idea was, what if we could re reward people for writing good posts and also reward people for finding and promoting good posts early, right? Because in theory, you want good content to be created. And in theory, good content means people have to curate it, f separate what's good from what's bad. And the people that are good at finding good content, right, before others do, should also be rewarded. So in theory, you're incentivizing quality of content and quality of curation. The problem is those things are entirely subjective and there's no civil resistance, meaning there's no way to ensure that one person doesn't have more than one account. And so what you ended up happening ended up seeing, and there's actually been not just informal analysis of it, but there's actually been several scientific academic papers that have dug into this. A few of them are, or at least one of them is linked in the guide. Um, what you ended up seeing was basically the same, like peep, one person setting up multiple accounts, right? Posting a blog, using their other accounts to upvote their own blog, right? Or using bots. And you basically were trying to incentivize quality, but ended up incentivizing quantity. And so you just got this massive quantity of spammy, low quality content. And eventually, not only did that kill the price of the token, but much more crucially, that killed the whole use of the product, right? 
if you were trying to use the product to write good material and find good material, you're now being drowned out in a bunch of crap. And so it, it literally killed the usage of the product, not just the token price. And I think builders sometimes think that, oh, the worst thing that will happen if my tokenomics are messed up is that my token price will go down, but I can fix that later. But no, that's not the worst thing that will happen. The worst thing that will happen is literally your product will be uh, messed up and unusable. So that was a great example of, of Steemit. There's been other examples like Axie Infinity, right? Like uh, uh, in in the web, in the early kind of play to earn games, um, Web3 gaming uh, experiments where basically, you know, the rate of emission of the token was tied to the number of players. And so while you're on the way up and the number of players coming in is high, the inflationary emissions keep getting worse and worse. But it's supported at least temporarily by the growing player base. But as soon as you inevitably, and it's just a matter of time, right? It's a question of when, it's not a question of if. Everything, there's nothing in the universe that can grow at a high rate for an infinite, um, infinite amount of time, right? Growth is, the growth rate is gonna slow down at some point, it is inevitable. And so as soon as the growth rate slows down, you now have this massive inflation that is no longer kind of being supported or masked by uh, a growing player base. And so you start to get this death spiral feedback loop of the token price starts declining, which means that players start either dumping more of the token and or leaving because they're not making as much uh, revenue, right? They're not like literally people were like making a living off of playing some of these games. And so if the token price goes down, they're making less money. So they stop playing as much and or they dump tokens. And so that leads the token price to go down further, which then leads people to leave more or sell more, which does put so you get this reinforcing death spiral that led to the, the collapse, 95% more collapse of not only, again, not only token price, but also player base, also the number of users of the game. So both are beautiful examples of tokenomics matter to the product itself, which people sometimes overlook. Yeah, I think that was a very clear ex explanation. And I agree with you that sometimes learning why something, some projects didn't work is a better education than learning why the ones that actually did work. And in, in, in the book, you talk about how like the way the tokenomics is set up will also determine the kind of user that you will attract. And you explain how in Steemit. There was a lot, there was, you att Steemit attracted people to go and extract value from it and try to game the system and how with different accounts, there were like the value of the, the value in the content dropped massively. And I was a early user of Steemit and I saw it happening. And there, there was a point where I, I entered into the website and I, the only thing I saw was bots talking to other bots. And you also explained how in, in Axie Infinity, the way the tokenomics were set up, it didn't really attract people that wanted to play the game. It only attracted people that wanted to farm the token and sell it in the market as, as soon as they got it, right? Yeah. yeah. After a certain point, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is that, that is, is very interesting. And you also, earlier in the conversation, you were, you mentioned something about stablecoins and how it's also important to look at the stablecoins that 
didn't work. And in the book, you mention Terra Luna and I think Iron Titan. So do you want to go a little bit into those and why those ones didn't work? Yeah, there's been a number of stable coins that have failed for various reasons. I think it's important. I, I think stable coins in particular are super useful for people who want to learn more about tokens, not only the ones that have failed, but the ones that do work because you have all these aspects of like interest rate and collateral and peg and um, arbitrage, right? And buying and selling pressure and supply and demand. You have basically all the key aspects embedded in one thing. And so I, I, I think stable coins, both the ones that have worked and have stuck around and the ones that have failed are a great place to start for people who are interested in learning. That being said, yeah, there's obviously been some very big stable coins that have failed, some blowups. In general, those have tended to be what's called under collateralized stable coins, right? And so stable coins that are backed by collateral that in aggregate is less than the value of the stable coins existing. So for example, like we all know that Ideally, one stablecoin is equal to $1. And so if you have MakerDAO basically works where there's 150% of the collateral backing each one. So if I wanted to mint a die, one die, which we want to be worth $1, I essentially have to lock up collateral in various different forms, right? Ethereum, for example, of $1.50. And what does this do? It ensures that even if the price of Ethereum drops suddenly and quite far, that there's still enough collateral in the system that worst case scenario, or not literally worst case scenario, but the design is made this way to have a safety mechanism where, you know, in a quote unquote worst case scenario, that Ethereum can be sold, can be liquidated, and it provides more $1 or more against the stablecoin. So the stablecoin is still backed by at least $1. A lot of stablecoins got in trouble because they were trying to do these fancy algorithmic things to basically have less than a dollar backing the dollar worth stablecoin, but fill in, but make that harder to detect or less likely to break with all these kinds of like fancy, essentially like smoothing things. And because as long as there wasn't essentially a run on the bank, as long as essentially everyone wasn't trying to cash in all at once then the stablecoin could keep trading at $1 because there's still some collateral backing it. This is effectively what happened with under collateralized tokens, Terra Luna being one of them, where it didn't necessarily start under collateralized, but it was collateralized by this collateral that was part of its own very circuitous logic, where the Luna backing the UST didn't really, like it drove, it derived most of its value from UST. And so if it, if it, if UST gains adoption, Luna goes up and vice versa. So you get these unhealthy feedback mechanisms to begin with. And then you had this problem where, and this is quite, quite ridiculous in hindsight, but you had this problem where they were paying 20% fee, excuse me, 20% yield, right? And so if there's a million UST out there, and there's 20% being paid on yield, that means there's 200,000 right, more UST that have to be created out of thin air to pay that yield. And so you have this constantly growing number of UST that is issued that needs to be backed, but the kind of revenue or the income to the protocol was much, much less than that. You had a lot more people borrowing US or minting UST to earn the yield than you did actually paying to borrow or lend it. 
And so what you had was this growing in size mismatch between the how much collateral or how much uh, liability, what's the total supply of UST, the liability that we need to back with collateral that was growing faster and bigger than the actual amount of collateral backing it. And so once you start, once that starts to unwind and once people start selling Luna and the collateral dips below the, once the, basically the entire market cap of Luna was less than the entire market cap of UST, you effectively have a stablecoin that is no longer backed by at least $1 of value. And so then people start selling Luna, right, to try to uh, convert back into UST and at least get um, what they can, right, before, before it is valued at less than a dollar, which means that you know, Luna goes down further, which means UST is less collateralized, which means people sell more to try to get out. And so you basically, again, get this kind of reinforcing death spiral, this bank run, if you will, that leads to the DPEG and the crash. And, and yeah, so that's, that, if, that similar thing has basically played out with several uh, under-collateralized stablecoins to the point where I think it's pretty universally accepted in the industry that under-collateralized stablecoins simply do not work. And there's the stablecoin trilemma is that you can either have decentralization, you can have two of these three things. You can have either decentralization, collateral efficiency, so not being like 150% over collateralized, right, for example, and scalability. And for example, a centralized coin like USDC, it has collateral efficiency because it's only $1 in the bank account backing it instead of $1.50, so it's collaterally efficient. And it has scalability, but it is not decentralized. Whereas a, a, a stablecoin like LUSD, Liquidity, is decentralized and scalable, but is over collateralized for that security. So you get the, the stablecoin trilemma, if you will, explain, helps to explain in hindsight why some of these things blew up. Yeah, that, that is very interesting. It's the, it's the first time I heard of the stablecoin. Trilemma. Well, we are usually hmm. we usually hear about the the blockchain trilemma, but it is uh, is very interesting applied to stablecoin. Like in the case of money on chain, I'm not sure if you know how the protocol works, but we have our stablecoin, and it is backed with Bitcoin. And at the moment, for every dollar on chain, there is around twenty dollars worth of Bitcoin to back it. Wow, so, that, that is very over collateralized, which obviously makes it safe, but less efficient, right? Yeah, that that is usually the like the criticism, if you want to call it like that. People say that that's the issue is that they, it requires a lot of collateral. Yeah, but it it's also a very interesting system because the extra collateral is is provided by a second token, which is called the the Bitcoin Pro. And the Bpro token basically is absorbing the, vol the volatility of the stablecoin. So what you get in result is a, like a slightly leveraged Bitcoin. So the Bpro token follows the value of Bitcoin, but when Bitcoin goes up, it goes up a little bit higher because now you have more, like as Bitcoin, as the value of Bitcoin goes up, you have more value backing the same amount of dollars. So that extra value goes to the Bpro holders. And when Bitcoin goes down, it's the other way around. So you, you basically have two actors, one that wants the stability and the other one that is wanting this extra uh, leverage. 
and they also earn money from the fees. Every time you mint and redeem a token, you have to pay a small fee, and that fee goes to the people that are adding this extra collateral. So it's a, it's a very interesting play between these two actors. And I, I've been involved with this project for a number of years now, and to me, it has been really amazing to see it work, both when, it's, when they're in a bull market and also in the bear market. And so far, the stablecoin has never depicted. So again, tokenomics and how you make these two different tokens interact with each other, it is extremely important. And when you were talking about Luna and the other stablecoins that fail, the thing that surprised me the most about those systems is how once they start failing, they they collapse completely in a matter of like very quickly. Yeah, because you get these feedback loops, which is one of the one of the fun parts in my opinion about tokenomics is doing this quantitative type of modeling and and, and systems design approach to the thing where you're creating basically a digital twin, right, or which is just a fancy way of saying like a model, right, that represents how this thing works, and then you're really just uh, stress testing it, right? You're throwing in a bunch of different assumptions, you're throwing in random patterns or random evolutions in the price of the collateral asset, you're throwing in outliers and extreme events, and you're seeing what happens to the system in these different, in, in these different conditions, right? Because let's be clear, there is no such thing as a perfect system, right? There is no such thing as a system that works as designed in every possible situation. Everything has risks, but, and, and that's not unique to crypto, right? The, the, Every man-made system, every natural system for that matter, has risks, has a context that it operates in. And it's a matter of stress testing, optimizing right for, a, for an acceptable level of risk within a given context and saying, this is, we're willing to accept these risks, this is reasonable, right? Bitcoin has a, basically has the assumption that at least 50% of miners are honest, right? A theory percent of validators right, will be error less than 33% will be malicious. These are various assumptions, key contexts within you can have a functioning system, but there's always risks. And the fun part, in my opinion, is doing this like stress testing, modeling, things like Monte Carlo simulations, et cetera, to find where the system breaks, try to fix it, right? Try to optimize it for the best, most resilient design that you can, given your objective. Yeah, that, that is so, so important. Even in our case, in money on chain, there are certain situations whereas if the collateral would drop, um, like right now it's $20 per stablecoin issue. If that would drop to less than four, the, then the, the, there is an emergency state that the protocol will go into and then mm -hmm. some, some functions will be paused until the price of Bitcoin recovers. Like, yeah. as you said, there, there is no system that will work no matter what the circumstances uh, we find ourselves in. So I would like to, be, because we're getting close-ish to the hour mark, so I would like to maybe start tackling a different topic, which is something that you mentioned before, and I think it's very important, which is how this new ability that we have to create tokens, we can now create systems that, as you said before, and in the book, they're not only owned by the team or the people that are maybe investing in the protocols, but by the users. And I think that's like the thing about tokenomics that makes this so powerful. 
So maybe we can delve a little bit into that. Yeah, I think it's a bit subjective. Different people will say that power of tokens are different things, but in my opinion, that's the real ultimate power, right? Is enabling user ownership. You can imagine not all, part of the problem that we have today is there aren't a lot of great standards for tokens. Not all tokens really actually function like ownership. We've been seeing this a lot in recent days with the, with the Uniswap situation, right? So there's the Uniswap labs, which have equity investors, right? Shareholders in the stock, right? A traditional kind of fundraise. And then there's the token holders, right? And the token and the equity are really competing over who gets to earn the fees. And the Uniswap's labs basically recently said, we're, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to charge a fee for the front end that effectively goes to equity holders. Meanwhile, token holders still don't earn any fees. The uni token is actually relatively useless token. It's purely a governance token. The value is just that people hope that one day in the future, there'll be a governance vote to start charging fees and pay those fees to the token. But for now, that doesn't happen. And it might be even more difficult because a lot of these equity holders are also large token holders who would vote against it because they could much more easily make the revenue on the equity side. So anyway, this is an example of why this is so important and how it can go wrong. If we had tokens that, and part of it is regulation, right? Regulatory clarity would go a long way to helping this. But if we had tokens that more truly functioned like ownership, curve tokens, GMX tokens, they function like ownership in the fact that you own or earn a portion of the protocol's revenues, for example. If you have these tokens, you effectively can give your power users ownership of your protocol. Imagine like starting a company, classic example I use is Uber, right? Like imagine starting Uber and you were able to give, instead of giving these $5 off your first ride, you could say own some tiny fraction of the company for being one of the early users, right? And so you're getting Airbnb too, right? Like Airbnb actually tried to give their hosts equity shares stock in Airbnb, but it was too difficult. It was too expensive. It was too difficult. There was too many regulatory hurdles to cross, right? And so they didn't do it. But imagine if Airbnb could say, okay, hosts, we're going to give you ownership of the protocol. Now your power users are the owners. Now your power users are in control of the protocol. And the protocol really becomes this user-driven community, which it always was, right? Like Airbnb and Uber are only valuable because of the users they have. And so instead of having our whole economy built around this system where rich people with money invest in companies and make all the profits while average people actually create the value and are early users and make these companies worth so much, get relatively little, imagine a world where I don't have to be rich. I can just be a power user, an early user, and also share in the value that I am helping to create. I think that's a very exciting vision that that tokens, when done well, can unlock and, and move us towards. Yes, yes. And in the in in the book, you you show, and I, I thought it was brilliant that how all these protocols and all these systems have a network effect, and network effects are very hard in the beginning. So the early users are so extremely important for all these systems. And if you, if you can reward 
those early users with ownership of the, of the protocol that helps to bootstrap and also reward them accordingly. Yeah, the early drivers or riders in Uber, they had no exposure to the growth of the company in the future unless they would by themselves invest in the company on, on, on their own. But if you could, like you said, if you could start rewarding the people and the users, especially those early users, yeah, you can just bootstrap the first part, which is the, the hardest. And yeah, like who better to be part owner of the system that the, the people are actually using it? Yeah. And, and to help drive home why this matters or why this is important, think about how ridiculously circuitous it is now, right? Like these companies go out and raise a ton of VC money so that they can pay these user acquisition costs, right? Uber raised all this cash so that they can then do things like get $20 free to take a ride, right? They're basically paying, raising a bunch of cash so that they can pay users in that cash. Why not cut out the middleman and just pay them in ownership of the protocol? Yeah, yeah. That seems like a much, much better and efficient system. We have... Uh, speaker of Zero X Block Boy, do you have a question for Maddie on the subject? Yeah, I had one earlier about systems and the, the boundaries that you had defined. But since you were talking about ownership, I wanted to stick on topic. One thing that I would pose is a, I'd be curious to hear your response relative to what you guys were just saying. Is I completely agree in the sense that there is a middleman there, and when you are doing that user adoption, you should be incentivizing users through some sort of maybe ownership structure or a way of giving them the rewards and the, the value that they're creating. But I want to press that a little bit with what your definition of ownership is, because I think there is big dilemma when you give users ownership, because the more ownership they have, they don't necessarily know what the best direction for the platform should be. While they do have the tech, the maybe the tactical feel for how it's being operated, I think there's a strategic question there of whether they know what's best and one kind of frame of reference that I'm using to make this, to make that comment is like, when you think about the innovator's dilemma, that thread of thought is that if you listen too much to your customers, they, the customers don't necessarily know what the next market is or what they really need to, to go from that next, that next product or that next uh, step. So I'm curious to rewarding all these new users or these initial users with ownership, who's to say that those initial users won't hijack the platform and keep it in its old, its first iteration. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You're essentially getting to the to governance, right? To the to the potential yeah. drawbacks Question of the ownership. Yeah, you're talking about ownership and kind of trying to pry out what do you mean by ownership? Yeah, I think it can mean a couple things to especially to avoid this potential problems that governance has. So before diving in, I do want to say that I think token governance or user governance powered by a token. Oftentimes, builders see that as like this purely good thing or this necessity. It is not, right? It has trade-offs. It has drawbacks. I think a lot of people add it because they don't know what else to do with the token or it seems like a way to reduce their regulatory risk. But every time you add token governance, you add an attack vector, right? Because if the token is tradable and it's used for governance, then someone can buy enough tokens to then vote some malicious thing potentially even draining the whole treasury, for example, right? Anytime you have governance, there's always pros and cons. So I think if ownership 
part of the challenge in this industry is that ownership is not very clearly defined. And again, that goes back to a lot of lack of regulatory clarity, like protocols largely cannot tokenize equity ownership rights, right? There are some exceptions to that when you do KYC and all this stuff, right? There's a platform called Fairment, which actually helps protocols launch literally their equity, their shares as tokens, right? So it's tokenized equity. And then they let you give those tokens, i.e. equity, to your early users, right? And early ambassadors and early adopters. So I think that's a good example of getting as close to this as possible, right? Where you have still the traditional like CEO, still the traditional management team running the company, but users literally own the equity of the company just in token form. Other approaches, depending on the use case, could be things like liquidity, right? The LUSD is a stable coin. They also have LQTY is the native token of the stablecoin protocol. And it's a governance-free protocol. There's literally no governance, right? It's ossified. It's built. The protocol's out there. It's immutable. No one can touch it or change it. But people use it to mint uh, these stablecoins. It's a very successful, at least in terms of decentralized stablecoins. And the protocol makes revenues. And holders of the native LQTY token earn those revenues, right? And so they don't own the platform in the sense of they can change it via governance, but they own the success of the platform, right? They own the revenue of the platform. So I think it does have different meanings in different contexts. I think it's somewhat subjective. I think there's not necessarily one size fits all or one approach is best, but I think you can still have reasonable approaches that do give users some kind of ownership without necessarily creating this, all these problems that we see with governance. And I think, I think Governance is a whole different topic, obviously, but I think DAOs and governance in general ha- is also evolving and realizing that, gee, maybe it doesn't make sense for all these people who don't really know much about this to be weighing in versus doing something more like representative democracy, where I'm able to elect a leader from my governance vote, or I'm able to delegate my stake to someone more informed and they can vote in the governance on my behalf, right? So moving from more like direct democracy to representative democracy, all these are, are different ways to minimize, I think, the issues you're bringing up while still retaining some aspect of ownership. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, definitely answers my question. I appreciate the, the thorough response and the, the good example. Appreciate it. Thank cool. you. Yeah, no worries. Yes, and thank you. Thank you, Blockboy, for the question. I think it was good to delve into that topic. Now we are getting close to the hour mark. So before we, we close, I think, or I would like you to maybe spend some time and give some advice for people that are maybe thinking of launching their own project, or maybe they are already working on their own project. Maybe they already launched and they are thinking, how can I use tokenomics to make my system stronger, like specifically towards builders? Yeah. Do, you, do you have any advice? I would say don't launch a token yet. Like that, not saying don't launch a token at all, but don't rush into launching a token before you really know what you're doing, before you've planned it out, you understand the trade-offs that you're making. Too many founders get into trouble just assuming they should launch a token as early as possible and launching one really early 
and just it just creates so many problems. There's a chapter in the book that goes into it again, and it features a lot from from Andre, the founder of Urine Finance. He has a great blog post called like building in DeFi sucks. And he mentions among other things, like as soon as you launch a token, you can no longer spend all your time focusing on actually what matters of improving your product, right? As soon as you launch a token, you have all these people in the discord blaming you for the price going down, right? Even when it's given away entirely for free, the urine finance token was given away entirely for free. But even then, you have people blaming you when the price goes down. You have people asking when this feature, when price go up, when this. And you end up having to manage almost like a publicly traded company. And so there's lots of downsides and costs and weaknesses to launching a token. Do not rush into launching a token. Do not do it without really carefully thinking through it and planning it. And check out the book. Check out the guide. Again, it's completely free. It's open source. I don't, there's no money here being made. There's no shill. It's available to everyone. Check it out. Try completing the tokenomics design canvas that's in it, right? To get a first draft of your token and really stress test it, right? Share it with people, share it with your investors, share it with the honest people who can give you good feedback because it is vastly easier and less expensive and less painful to redesign a token before you launched it than it is to try and fix something that's messed up after you launch a token. It is incredibly difficult and expensive and just looks bad and burns a lot of your momentum and good faith, et cetera, when you have to drastically change a token after you launch it. In some ways, launching a blockchain or cryptocurrency product or crypto product is more like launching a hardware startup than it is a software startup. Like moving fast and breaking things is not necessarily right carry over to blockchain and crypto. Yes, I hope uh, people pay attention to that advice. I wish more people would have uh, done so because there's too many examples of people that rush into launching their token and it ends up hurting a lot. And like you said, I see a lot of projects that are spending a lot of their time and energy into defending the price of the token or just figuring out how to add value to the token that doesn't necessarily need to exist. And yeah. if they would devote all their time and energy into the product, that would be way, way better. Yeah. Yes. And the book is linked so you, everyone can find it up there in the space. Mati has also had it in his profile and we will add a link to when we release this as a podcast and all of that is open source, is free. So it's a wonderful resource for any builder out there. So for our, our last question, Matty, and thank you so much for giving us the, your time and attention. The, we always end up with the same question, which is, if you were to meet Satoshi Nakamoto today, <laughs> what question would you ask him? <laughs> oh, wow. Wow, that's a good question. I think I would ask him what he what he thinks of um, Bitcoin's current use as a store of value, because the whole white paper was initially conceived, right? The verbiage is a peer-to-peer -peer, uh, payments, right? Peer-to-peer -peer cash product, right? That's what Bitcoin is, was for making payments to each other, digital cash, not necessarily for being a store of value. And so I'd be very curious to hear about how 
his perception of how the narrative has maybe shifted his perception of holy crap it's literally $34,000 per bitcoin right when it used to trade at pen, like fractions of a cent so I, I, yeah i'd love to hear his kind of take on on how far it's come and was that even ever was something he imagined or intended yes yes i, I think that would be a a very good question i can't imagine satoshi being able to predict everything that happened with Bitcoin. So it, it would be so interesting to hear his thoughts today on what happened after his creation got released into the wild and adopted in such a crazy way. Yeah, in, I've, yeah. I, I would have to believe that it has surpassed 10,000x his expectation of what might happen. Yes, I, I am inclined to, to agree with you because I, I don't think anyone could have predicted that it happened like it did in the way that it, it did. So uh, yeah, I, I don't think we'll ever get these answers, but it is fun to speculate about yeah. Mati, again, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you for writing this book, offering it for free and so much resources for builders. And this is something that, that people can use for any ecosystem they're building in, not just in the Bitcoin sidechains or Ethereum or any sort of blockchain project that has a token can benefit from your work. And hopefully we'll get a chance to have you again because there's so much that we couldn't cover in one hour. It, it was impossible to, to cover it all, but I think this is a, a very good intro for people and with a lot of actionable advice that I think it is wonderful. So thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, all right. And thank you everyone that came and stayed all the way to the end. Uh, we do these spaces every week. So hopefully we'll see you again uh, next week where we have another guest with another interesting topic in the world of Bitcoin, blockchain, DeFi, and all that good stuff. Thank you all and have a good night or good morning, depending on where you are in the world. Goodbye.